And we caused this, you know, we, we were the cause of this outbreak because of not preserving species, illegal wildlife trade that allows abnormal ecological interactions and immunocompromised populations. There's a, what we call a nosologic chain, epidemiologic chain that at the end of the day ended up causing this catastrophe. to the Conservation Tribe. I'm your host, Blaine Edwards, aka Earth Offline. On this podcast, I talk with a range of conservationists every single week, from scientists, students, creatives, innovators, and everyone in between. I hope this can be a platform for conservationists to share their story, educate, collaborate, and ultimately inspire action. So if you want to join our Conservation Tribe, then make sure to hit subscribe and enjoy the podcast. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we are joined by wildlife warrior Gianmarco Betone, a vet student who is currently working as a researcher at a biomolecular laboratory that focuses on parasitology and epidemics in marine species. So, Gianmarco, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Blaine, for hosting the, the podcast. I'm really excited from Costa Rica. I'm excited as well. Alrighty. So today's episode, as you can probably tell, is going to be focused around wildlife diseases and epidemics. And on top of that, we're going to explore the, the very interesting concept of the One Health Initiative. But before we do that, can you please uh, introduce yourself to the podcast? So, yeah, of course, uh, as I said, really excited to be here. So as Blaine introduced, uh, introduced me, my name is Gianmarco Betoni. I'm a last year vet student focusing on wildlife health. I want to give a, a focus on epidemics how we can relate wildlife disease mechanisms, trans transmission mechanisms into human health, and how keeping ecosystems will keep humans and wildlife health, and will avoid these situations that we're living right now as COVID-19, which has been really tough on all of us. And let's hope this actually serves as experience to improve our, our way of seeing conservation and the environment. So that's my focus. Um, I, I actually work, and as, as Blaine said, I work in two places. I work in a biomolecular laboratory where I focus on marine epidemics and parasitology. I'm leading uh, two projects at the moment, mainly on, on stingrays, parasitology and diseases with my colleagues in the lab. And as well, I work in a wildlife rehab center when we, where we receive uh, injured animals, seized animals by the by illegal wildlife trade. So I, I actually live uh, along this situation and I see the cruelty of this. So that's why I want to encourage people on, on seeing how important is preserved the environment is actually. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. So as, as mentioned before, you are interested in, in focus on wildlife diseases uh, currently, but can you please explain what are wildlife diseases and epidemics? So before going into wildlife per se, I want to maybe explain a little bit the basic concepts of wildlife of diseases and epidemics. So when we're talking about diseases, we it's a really general term. We all know what a disease is. So basically it's a non-physiological process going on on a living thing. It could be even a plant. It could be an animal. We're focusing, of course, on animals. So when we have diseases, we can be talking about infectious agents such as Ebola, such as COVID-19, such as uh, AIDS, all of these diseases that can that are contagious, infectious. And when we talk about epidemics, we are focusing on population diseases. So we are not focusing only on one uh, animal or on one living thing. We're focusing on how a disease affects a population, how it distributes and how it ended up 
in that species and how it can spill over. I'm going to explain the term spill over in a few moments into different species and cause what we actually know as pandemics or in the, in animal terms, pansotics. Okay. So what are some of the different mechanisms in which these wildlife diseases develop? So when we talk about wildlife epidemics, as I said, I'm going to focus on, on infectious diseases. We're talking about how these infectious agents distribute on the wildlife populations. So usually when we have an unstable ecosystem, for example, of course, most of the ecosystems nowadays are really anthropogenically affected. There's a lot of human interaction, lots of human activity going into the ecosystems almost worldwide. So we poorly have uh, virgin ecosystems working. And when we have diseases are part of the, of, the, of the ecology. It's normal to have diseases at certain point. So we, it's normal to have viruses, it's normal to have bacteria and fungi affecting some susceptible animals. When we have healthy populations, for example, there's few animals that are susceptible, immunocompromised, that their immune system is not actually properly working. So they will be affected by the disease. This is really normal in healthy ecosystems. But when we have an ecosystem that is being uh, destructed by humans, when we have lots of uh, human interactions, when we have domestic species going into the ecosystems, we will have a shift of equilibrium. So we will have more susceptible animals because of stress, and because abnormal interactions between humans and, and animals that can allow abnormal interactions between pathogens that never were in contact with that species and then move into, into, the, into an animal. So that's what we call a spillover. When we have a pathogen that, that, that was in, never in contact with one species and randomly because of ecosystemic pressure, it's in contact with that. So the immune system is compromised. And it's a combination of, it makes the perfect combination for that pathogen to infect and cause an outbreak. Okay, so you mentioned ecosystem pressures. What do some of those ecosystem pressures look like? There's lots of examples. Uh, if we're talking about deforestation, for example, Ebola is a really, is one of my favorite diseases to explain and, you know, argue about it because Ebola, it, it was always there. It was, it was part of the ecosystem. The virus was with co coexisting with the species in that in that area, and because of human pressure, poaching, deforestation, uh, that virus ended up in gorillas, for example, which are one of the species that the great apes that were affected. So, what mechanisms are causing these these uh, spillovers? Deforestation, overfishing in the oceans. We can be talking about poaching, the buying bushmeat, and we can talk. We can also talk about interaction between domestic species, cattle, for example, getting into the ecosystems and affecting all these animals. So there are some examples of anthropogenic pressure into ecosystems. Okay, so these these pressures, I guess, they force these animals to, to live in a way that they wouldn't normally. So they perhaps have to move to a different location and then that forces them to interact with different species. and Ecological interactions that never happened that allow pathogens to spill over into a new species with immunocom that didn't have antibodies for that pathogen. And then the pathogen is just, okay, this is the perfect host mm -hmm. and we will cause, will cause a disease outbreak. Mm -hmm. And you also talked about this idea that viruses are part of a healthy ecosystem. So what role do they play within a healthy ecosystem? So basically in a healthy ecosystem, when we have, as I said, these viruses need to be part of this ecosystem. They've been here, they've been there for hundreds, thousands of years with coevolution with the species. They help control populations. So 
they help what we call actually natural selection. So if a population of animals have, for example, we have uh, a healthy animals, they will survive. But if we have animals with sickness that are weak, viruses will, pathogens will go infect that animal and will kill him. And then we have only the most strongest, the strongest animals in that population. So the genetic will keep up. And that's one of the main things that how pathogens help control the, the populations of animals. If, if we go into general terms, they as well can help control. In, for example, there's, a, there's some viruses named bacteriophages, which are the ones that actually destroy bacteria. They help keep bacteria, bacteria populations in an equilibrium as well. So it's a chain. They help uh, keeping animal populations in equilibrium, bacteria populations in an equilibrium, and we can talk about fungi populations in equilibrium, everything in equilibrium. So we need those pathogens to be there. Yeah, yeah. And and within there, but within that, that equilibrium state, it has to have that balance right. So zoonotic diseases is a term I've been hearing a lot recently due to the nature of the COVID-19 global pandemic that is affecting everyone. But can you please explain what is a zoonotic disease and can you perhaps give some examples of some zoonotic diseases that people may be familiar with? Perfect. So when we're talking about zoonotic disease, at the end of the day, one of the main goals of, of veterinarians and public health workers is keeping human health. I would I would not say me myself keeping human health is I think I would I would say keeping one health. So I will explain about one health a little bit in a while. But when we talk about zoonotic diseases, these are basically diseases that can move from animals to humans. And 90% of of diseases of infectious diseases nowadays are zoonotic. That means that they came in from from animals to humans. So examples for the most famous example, AIDS. So it came from primates, wild primates, great apes. To humans we have ebola which is my favorite outbreak because of the complexity of the of the epidemiological chain ebola the one of the recent outbreaks in in africa is a zoonotic disease a really dangerous zoonotic disease covid19 is a potential zoonotic disease there's no scientific proof but there's theories that are really really secure that this is a virus that came in from wildlife mm. and mainly because of, of genetic fragments on the virus that, that they have on the genome that they have found. Uh, we can talk about rabies as well, uh, which is a, a disease that affects all mammals except for um, vampire bats. Uh, it's a zoonotic disease. We can talk about tuberculosis, which is a really, really dangerous disease that can be transmitted from wildlife and, and cattle as well through humans. Uh, we can talk about leptospirosis, which is a disease that causes renal failure in humans and in a lot of mammals. And the list goes on and on. But those are the most famous diseases that SARS, for example, the, the, the last outbreak of SARS uh, about seven, six, nine years ago, and MERS as well, which are coronaviruses as well, are zoonotic diseases. Mm -hmm. one, came in, one came in from camels, one came in from, uh, from the civet, from the eastern civet in, in China. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when you compare a zoonotic disease to a non-zoonotic disease, what are, the, what are those key differences that allow that disease to spread from animal to humans so here when when we talk about for example a zoonotic disease and the key like gateways that allow that pathogen to move into humans we're to, we here we come and put the the ecosystem pressure in so it's a really negative cycle for example i'm going to give an example ebola again so we have the ebola outbreak uh, in 2014 2015 uh, where humans were there was a really numerous quantity of of people eating bushmeat 
uh, bushmeat is the term for uh, illegal meat coming from wildlife with no sanitary procedure, uh, there's no restrictions at all, and it's really, really dangerous to eat bushmeat. So there was a lot of people eating bushmeat in Africa, in Sierra Leone, mainly in Liberia, and these poor hygienic conditions created, the virus was there, and the virus spilled over from the species that was that, that were infected into humans because of this consumption. And this is humans getting into the ecosystems again, hunting in really, really, really uh, bad ways and eating and selling that meat, that causes an outbreak. Another example is the SARS outbreak that in that China had 10 years ago, where there's this renowned or really uh, of, uh, wet markets that are related to the COVID-19 outbreak, where there's an inter abnormal interaction of several species that came in from a lot of geographical points that allowed the spillover. So that poor hygienic conditions, the abnormal interaction between humans and animals and animals and animals causes the spillover. And of course, several species are not immunocompetent to that virus. The virus will infect the, the, the cell and will technically just cause a disease because there's no in, an, enough immunity. And that's how outbreaks are caused. Okay, so for a non-zoonotic disease, do they still have the potential to become a zoonotic disease? Is that of course? So yeah, okay. When we have a non-potential zoonotic disease, so we have a, a term that is named zooanthropology anthropologic. That means that comes from humans to animals. That's vice vice versa as zoonotic disease. In terms of any of infectious agents, every infectious agent could potentially cause a spillover even if there was not a report of several, uh, for example, if we have Ehrlichia, which is a, a disease that causes a problem on, on canids, it's not reported that it causes disease in humans, but if there is a special event, for example, where it is a, a, a normal quantity of bacteria, an immunocompromised uh, population of humans, there's a possibility. There's always a possibility. So the, the chance is always there. Okay. I think that's an interesting point. This idea that they can, if it's not considered a zoonotic disease now, it has the potential to be. And that potential increases with more uh, ecosystem pressures that I guess we'll move on to this in the next exactly. question. But these ecosystem pressures are induced a lot by human activity. It's really interesting. So as I said, the COVID-19 outbreak, we are really sad, right? Like everybody is really sad. Myself, uh, everybody canceled plans, the economy is paralyzed, and we caused this. You know, we, we were the cause of this outbreak because of not preserving species, illegal wildlife trade that allows abnormal ecological interactions and immunocompromised populations. There's a, what we call an oncologic chain, epidemiologic chain that at the end of the day ended up causing this catastrophe. Okay, so let's break that one down. So what are some human activities that can affect the spread of wildlife diseases? The first thing that makes the spread of these diseases and outbreaks easier is illegal wildlife trade. I, I want to put also an example in the research that I'm doing here in Costa Rica. Uh, we have several theories. So basically, we are researching as uh, parasites on stingrays and an eye disease that we have been evidencing on the, on the stingrays that we capture. We've been seeing that there's a, an abnormal quantity of rays with these eye diseases and parasites, and we are relating it this disease outbreak mainly because we've been seeing a lack of top predators, of sharks. So there were reports of, of a stable population from, of sharks in the area. Uh, now they, they are wiped out. So this causes an abnormal increase of stingray population that will 
allow uh, if there's a pathogen in there to transmit easier between this abnormal population of stingrays and all because there was a wipeout of sharks of top predators so exploding wildlife illegal wildlife trade deforestation those are the, the main pressures that are allowing diseases to transmit in wildlife and cause outbreaks and if these pathogens are zoonotic and interact with humans they will spill over and it's a, it's a negative cycle mm-hmm. okay one one way i like to look at the intricacies of a, of an ecosystem is comparing it to a spider's web. So if you if you imagine that an ecosystem is a spider's web, any tiny touch of that spider's web ripples through the whole thing. And before you know it, you could rip a big hole in it. And that's how we need to be approaching our actions and how they affect the ecosystem slash spider's web. The tiniest movement, the tiniest action can can ripple through the entire thing and can tear massive holes in it. So we need to be careful. Exactly. It's, it's like a domino. So if we, as, as a spider word, a domino, we can compare it to a lot of things. If we do negative activities, such as legal wildlife trade, this will cause pandemics. This will cause the wipeout of species, of entire species. We also have the example of hypheliomycosis in, in amphibians, which are a really susceptible group of animals. Corals as well, really susceptible group of animals. Uh, to diseases, for example, in corals, where we are having uh, this global warming phenomena going on, where the acidic levels of water in the in the oceans are increasing, warmer waters are increasing, which causes stress on coral populations, which cause bleaching, and at the same time, corals are immunocompromised. And then we have this full charge of pathogens coming from rivers, coming from cities into the ocean, interacting with the corals that they've never interacted, infected them and ended up killing thousands, thousands of species of corals. That's another example of how anthropogenic activities are causing damage on, on ecosystems. Hitridomycosis in, in amphibians as well. We're having these fun, uh, fungi that never interacted with amphibian populations going into ecosystems. And there's already several species that are critically endangered or reported as extinct because of these outbreaks. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Like if we focus in on this idea of equilibrium, that equilibrium, as you can imagine, would take a lot, a lot of time to kind of reach that level. Uh, and those conditions have to be pretty stable. Like you, you need stable conditions and a bit of time in order to, to get that equilibrium. I would imagine, like I'm not a scientist. So if that is the case, that you need stable conditions and you need a lot of time, if there are these, these pressures induced a lot by humans that changes those conditions and it forces species to interact with different species that they wouldn't normally that changes that equilibrium that changes that and all that work all that hard work and a lot of time to reach that equilibrium is kind of down the drain very quickly if you're not careful exactly it's exactly and and it's really it's of course we are all worried right now because covid19 is affecting economy but i can i could give you a list of diseases of wildlife diseases that are wiping out, I want to emphasize on these populations of animals. Like this is a, a really concerning topic and these diseases in each moment, and there, there we go to the point where I mentioned when a disease can potentially be zoonotic, at some point will not only affect that population of wildlife, it can easily jump into humans and cause mm-hmm. the outbreaks. So if you want to see it from that point, if you want to see it, because unfortunately people want to see that, how do we preserve human health oh, yeah. above all? We are forgetting about wildlife health as well, and we are forgetting how linked wildlife health and ecosystem health is to human health. So 
that's one of the points that we actually you want to mention yeah. one health yeah we're, we've got to talk about that next and and that's unfortunately human nature seems to be selfish like there's this selfish component to it the selfish gene and so if you're trying to convince another human to change their ways you need to spin that thing in a way that it makes that person feel like there's a benefit for them to make that change like if you can say you should be careful with what you eat or you should conserve the species because if you're not careful you could get sick and your family could get sick they'll be like oh okay maybe i'll listen and i'll pay attention so segue to the next question is what is the one health initiative and why is it important so one health the one health initiative is a really a really new uh topic a really new term that came in on the last 10 years on the last five years three years it's been is getting really really strong and the wildlife Vet- veterinary association the wva which had the congress the international congress in costa rica last year the main topic was one one health it's really important in in the in the veterinary career they're encouraging one health as the one in every term in if you're focusing on wildlife if you're focusing on small species if you're focusing on cattle horses everything is linked we are being trained to think as one health agents that's that's one of the one of the things that universities are encouraging but I think we have to encourage this on, on the general public as well. As you said, letting people know how important it is to preserve ecosystems, to respect ecosystems, to respect nature in order to preserve human health, in order to preserve, preserve what we love. Because if we keep doing all this excessive exploitation of, of ecosystems, industrial excess, everything polluting, we are not keeping one health. So the CDC and, the, and the most of the international organizations define One Health as an integrated perspective of human health, ecosystemic health, and wildlife health, animal health in general. And keeping all these three linked will keep the One Health initiative. And when we mean One Health, the One Health initiative, we mean a healthy planet where all of the populations, humans, animals, and ecosystems are in harmony, like stable. That's the definition of One Health. Okay, so the One Health concept, like for me, that makes a lot of sense. It's pretty much considering this from a holistic point of view. You're not viewing these things in isolation. You're viewing them in terms of how they the interplay between everything on this planet. But what what industries can utilize or take advantage of this uh, One Health concept? Like, is this something that you can see in in I guess like physical health, like gyms, can they do it? Like what industries and what professionals can adopt this mindset? So as you said, uh, One Health is a holistic approach. So in my point of view, but in general, the papers that I've read, the literature that I've read includes, everybody's included in One Health, professions, public health uh, um, physicians, veterinarians, biologists, sociologists, governmental agencies are involved in One Health. Everybody, the general population is involved in One Health. What industries are could be involved? Every industry, they can, we can still produce crops, we can still produce cattle in a really, in really stable way to preserve this. I've seen examples here in Costa Rica. Costa Rica, I'm not, I'm not bragging about my country, but Costa Rica is a, one of the best examples of in cattle production in, in what, what is um, both meat production and, and milk production is one of the best countries because on how they are preserving the, the environment, the nature 
with an equilibrium with cattle. It sounds really weird because we, when we usually think about cattle production, we, we think about mass deforestation, enormous places being a consistent wind wipe out just to put a lot of cattle in that area. And uh, that's one of the things that we're relating. But Costa Rica, I've seen examples of, of farms that are allowing there was a point in Costa Rica, uh, an, an exaggerated wipe out, wiping out of ecosystems just to build farms. Mm-hmm. And I've seen a lot of producers, lots of agricultural professionals trying to rebuild that, those ecosystems, plant, replanting trees and diminishing the quantity, the quantity of cattle in their farm yeah. just to have that equilibrium. We still need to produce food for the population. Mm, but 100%. The, the one thing I, um, obviously this is so complex and everyone needs to eat and everyone needs to to make money you know to money makes the world go around but when i view conservation from a holistic point of view i also consider there being a mindset problem like the way that we actually perceive other animals informs a lot of the negative things that we do to them so i ask myself the question like animal rights should animals have rights what do they look like is that an idea that you explore or play around with yeah, usually when we one of the in the in the courses that we receive in college, one of the one of the most important courses for me is animal welfare. This is a really complex topic because, as you said, we as humans have a selfish, anthropocentric point of view. We see ourselves at the center of the universe, not even of the planet, but of the universe. And this causes general population seeing animals as less. For example, in production animals, they're just food. They're just meat. They don't deserve rights. They just they will die eventually one day. And if we go into wildlife, I think there's a lack of consciousness into wildlife specifically. Like people know wildlife is there, but they are not. They don't really care about wildlife. They don't really give that importance uh, because we see ourselves as, as the center of the universe. So that's that's one of the first steps into the negative cycle that we were talking about. This, uh, disease uh, epidemics, environmental destruction, is seeing animals as less. And I think in myself, as a vet student, as a future vet, veterinary professional, that animals, every species animal, even if they are for production and they will eventually die, deserve the best quality of life. And Definitely. the best quality of life means the best hygienic conditions, which at the same time will stop epidemics, will stop disease transmission, and there's a term that is named the, the five rights of animals, which are basically that every animal needs food, needs water. Every animal needs to be free of stress, free of pain, and every animal needs to express their normal behavior. And this is needs to be applied into every species of animals, wildlife, cattle production, and minor species such as dogs and cats. Yeah, what's that framework called? Is it the five domains of animal welfare or something? Exactly. Yeah. Five points of animal welfare. It's five points that every every researcher, every person that is working with with wildlife needs to address. Mm, and I, I'm a big believer in that because that can be applied. Just being aware of that model can inform um, how you act and the things that you do that affect another animal. Because you're you're like, should I do this? Okay, I'm gonna run. I'm gonna look at this five domains of animal welfare. Is it is it gonna be a negative effect in one of these things or a combination of those things and if there is then perhaps you shouldn't do that so yeah i think this holistic point of view this whole animal rights thing and, and becoming more compassionate as human beings is an integral piece to solving this conservation problem because if we everything begins with a thought right so if 
if our thought processes are not aligned with the One Health concept, then our actions aren't going to be aligned either. So it begins with changing our, our mindset. Um, you're talking earlier about some, some wildlife, you can name like a list of wildlife diseases where there's a lot of populations that are at risk. Are there any, because you're obviously working in this space, are there any wildlife diseases or are there any species at the moment that are particularly threatened with some wildlife diseases at the moment? For example, yeah, uh, there's a lot of species threatened with wildlife disease. If we go to amphibians that I already mentioned, there's a whole list of this group of animals, corals, for example, but let's not go so far. We can talk about, um, I've been reading lately about the wild African duck, which is a really threatened species in Africa. I've been reading about how these small populations of animals are really threatened. And for example, can be talking about rabies outbreaks that wipe out entire small populations of, of African wild dogs. I also collaborate with a, with a researcher here in Costa Rica. Her name is uh, Dr. Gabriela Hernandez. Uh, she, she works with dolphins and she works specifically with a disease called brucellosis, which is called by brucella, uh, which is a really sonotic disease as well, a really sonotic agent. And these species are being threatened because not only these bacteria, uh, we can, we, they're being threatened because a lot of fungal infections, then we can talk about cetaceans. We had a, a blue whale necropsy uh, four months ago in December, and we still do not know the cause because of, of death of, of this huge animal. But we can talk from whales, blue whale, the biggest animal on the, on the world, from small amphibians that are being threatened. Mm-hmm. Insects, there's a lot of, even in insects, there's been outbreaks of infectious diseases that nobody knows the epidemiological chain probably related to, to anthropogenic uh, events that cause insects populations to decrease. It's crazy how every group of animals in the world are threatened because of diseases that are 100%, almost all of them, caused because of anthropogenic pressures. Because as I mentioned, diseases need to be part of the ecosystems, but they are always in an equilibrium. They're always, they always kind of target into susceptible animals to keep the population of that animal strong and keep the strongest alive to keep the genetics, the good genetics flowing on. That's one of the principles of how this ecophysiological point works. Yeah, so with, the, with these ecosystem pressures and you have these species kind of doing things that they wouldn't normally do and interacting with other uh, species that they wouldn't normally do, there would be, I guess, interaction of perhaps different diseases. Like how do, how do these diseases evolve? Like can they how do they become new diseases? Like how do, how does that process work? Like how do you get one disease here and then it evolves into something that's considerably more uh, lethal or dangerous? What does that process look like? So there's a lot of processes like involved in this. So when we have a new disease in a new population, uh, it could be humans, it could be any other animal. We are talking about emerging diseases. So that's a disease that's never been seen before in a certain population of animals. So we are talking about COVID-19 again, it's an emerging disease. And what causes these pathogens to, to actually get so, so dangerous are, there's, there's, there's a really technical term that I would like to, to use, which is named infectious dosage, which, for example, if we have a virus infecting an animal and the animal is not, or a group of animals, let's say, they have like five animals that are being infected. 
the virus replicates or bacteria replicates, and this will cause an enormous quant an abnormal quantity of bacteria of, of pathogens that increases the infectious dosage for other susceptible animals, and the immune system can cope with that. So that's how it expands and expands and expands because this virus, this is an example in viruses. They replicate into in the cells really fast. Some species of viruses faster than others, and the dosage is increased, allowing them to infect, and the immune system will won't cope. Uh, even in a healthy animal that is strong, is that the immune system is really really efficient. If there's a, an abnormal infectious dosage infecting that animal, that will cause an a disease. Another thing that we can be talking about and a really important topic that I want to address is antimicrobial resistance. This is a real, a real topic that I think you've heard. It's really, really, really uh, getting on trend. And it's basically how we are creating humans. We are creating like, antimicrobial resistant bacteria. What is an antimicrobial resistant bacteria? It's literally a bacteria that doesn't respond to any medicine, to any antimicrobial. So when we have a bacteria that doesn't respond to any of this, and you just can cure the, the infection, the disease, imagine an outbreak of this when we don't have a cure and could wipe out entire populations. And this is happening. And I'm happy that COVID-19 is a COVID-19 outbreak and not one of these, because this will eventually happen. And if we continue to put these pressures, these antimicrobial are mutating. They are generating genes that allow them to to create enzymes, to create other mechanisms to destroy that antibiotic, and they just are resistant. They just continue to grow, continue to, to disperse and distribute, and the antibi antibiotic won't just do anything. Viruses, for example, influenza viruses, which are, we had an outbreak of influenza in 2009, which is another zoonotic uh, disease, it mutates. So these viruses create replications where at the same time they mutate, and these mutations if we had an immune response to that virus, the new mutation will allow that virus to easily escape the immune system that already we already created. So mutations, antimicrobial resistance, one of these two are one of the main points that are allowing these pathogens to be really dangerous and really potentially uh, a threat to a lot of animals, humans included. Hmm, interesting. That that's a scary thought. Those viruses that are resistant to these you know, the medicine that we currently have. Is that a small percentage of these diseases? So we're having a lot of bacteria. So uh, there's there's a phenomena and it's really common on it's really common to see it on veterinary medicine because of the unconscious or irresponsible use of antibiotics. So there's not when we when I talk about irresponsible use of antibiotics, we talk about applying antibiotics to the food, to the water and not managing the, the, the all these antibiotic, um, how do how you say, all, all these antibiotics, they, there's, there's not a proper handling of this antibiotic into the environment. And they just go into the environment and this, this there's like, it's really complex. This goes into bacterial physiology. These quantities of, of antibiotics that go into the environment allow these bacteria to get like, to, uh, they allow them to create genes. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's it's in a small quantity of there's it's not a big quantity of antibiotics that go that goes into the environment. They they kind of build us like they slowly build a, an immunity to the the antibiotics. Exactly, we can say that. Yeah. This exposure to these antibiotics will cause 
in really slow progress, this bacteria to turn resistant. Okay. Of course, right. in a in a timeline, and this been have this been happening for since antibiotics were created, and now we're seeing the results of the expo the constant exposure of this antibiotic of these bacteria into antibiotics, and now they're just turning resistant. Interesting. They're creating mechanisms, genes, uh, enzymes, proteins, a lot of molecules that allow them to resist and avoid them. Just they just avoid them, and this is a phenomenon that is really is getting really common in humans. It's common, really common in animals right now in in animal production, and it's getting really common in in humans, especially on hospitals. What we call uh, in Spanish nosocomiales, that would be infectious diseases that are resistant to antibiotics in in hospitals, and then we have these patients that just don't recover, uh, don't don't heal because there's no response of of these bacteria to antibiotics. Mm. There's no treatment technically. Okay. So the things that we're talking about is, like we mentioned, it's it concerns everything on this planet, and and it's a holistic point of view. Um, so on that, what are some things that the general public can do to to mitigate the the impact of wildlife diseases? What can we do to help try and slowly solve this problem? So there, it's a, it's a chain as well. I think us professionals, uh, future professionals, professionals that are involved in conservation. Could be biologists, could be veterinarians, need to enforce environmental education. I think we need to start from schools, from universities, uh, regardless of the career that you choose, regardless of the area of the culture that you choose. We need to establish environmental education as a really important subject, such as math can be, such as uh, English can be, such as languages can be, reading can be. I think nowadays, and especially after this pandemic, I think environmental education is the main tool that we can use to help people understand in the near future. And we, and that's on, on, on the young population. When we're talking about adults that sometimes are really hard to manage because they already have their thoughts established, I think environmental education as well, letting them know that negative impacts that if they continue to to negatively uh, impact the environment will have on their, on their future, on their kids, on their, on their, on their on the economic point of view. There's a lot of points that we can, that we can address. How that people can get involved, uh, there's lots of ways. Um, ecotourism, for example, that, that's, that's a really important uh, thing that it needs to be mm, encouraged in, in, different, in different populations where uh, Letting people go into the into the into the countries in a as tourists in a responsible way, not interacting excessively with wildlife, respecting the environment, not polluting. They're really basic concepts. But I've seen people that even even though they say it's really concept, they still do it. They they still pollute. They still interact in a really irresponsible way with with wildlife. And I think encouraging all this with in, in environmental education and letting the governments, local governments know that this is really important and this will help the economy of the country. Mm-hmm. As that's one of the main things, environmental education is, is the main uh, tool to, to, to avoid all this, this situation. Yeah, education all comes down to education. And like we talked about before, it begins with a thought. So we need to educate people so that that thought is the right thought and that leads to a, the right actions. 
Um, the okay. the ecotourism part again is something I believe in when done responsibly, like you touched on, because there are ones that perhaps don't do it responsibly, but when done right, I think it can have a massive positive impact, and that is primarily due to the economic factor. Um, people can make a living from doing this, and when done right, we can all benefit from that arrangement. However, the five domains of animal welfare i don't know if i'm actually saying that right but if you google it you'll it will come up that can be applied to how we operate within ecotourism tourism as well if we consider these things and how they affect other animals and and the environment that would lead that would help encourage the most responsible and sustainable uh ecotourism practices exactly exactly so there's a lot of there's lots of practice, not only practices that we can help to in boost economies in, a, in an environmental friendly way. There's a lot of ways, not only ecotourism, we can be talking about encouraging, again, people into environmental environmental programs, uh, vol, vol, internships, internships, mm. regardless of the of the career you have. I've seen that a lot of, in here in Costa Rica, we receive a lot of, of students and not necessarily coming in from from um, veterinary backgrounds, biology backgrounds, they came in from a lot of backgrounds and encouraging them into in, like helping wildlife, um, seeing that there's a really positive thing of doing this. And that's another thing that we can that we can encourage volunteerships, innerships, uh, not scientifically necessarily, but environmental friendly innerships where people are involved into the environment, help constantly, and, and this is another really important uh, tool we can use. Okay, we're nearing the end. Um, I've got pretty much just the last couple of questions, but did you want to touch on something that we haven't yet covered? For the moment, I think the, the One Health approach, it's, uh, I wanted to emphasize again on, on this uh, really important because I, I hope after this pandemic, after this situation uh, of COVID-19, all of us as a whole, as a, as a human population, start seeing and this involves governments i think governments are really important to encourage but sometimes they just leave environmental uh, education or environmental policies at last i think hopefully this situation this uh this really really uh hard situation will help people shift their mind and maybe uh, maybe just they will it will not cost a hundred percent like maybe just in a little way, make people change their environmental, the, the way of seeing the environment. You know, this, this is one of the things that I that I wanna mention mm. that the One Health approach is at least a little bit in in people's minds from now from now on. Yeah, and I mean this, that's all we can probably hope for at this point. Like, is we need people to start thinking about this concept and even just understanding that it exists and that it's important. And then slowly, 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 other things follow from that. But um, yeah, it comes down to educating people on this and the existence of this concept and why it's important. Uh, and because it's so complex and it concerns everyone, we can't expect uh, everyone to change overnight. Like it's going to take a long time. Uh, but exactly. it's worth investing our time and energy and in making that transition because um, 
yeah, the, the, the planet will be healthier and better off for it. You, you, your family and your children and their children will be better off for it. Uh, it's just, um, yeah, taking the time right now to make these really, really fundamental changes. Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, I think this, co- this, this pandemic is just a, a call off. Like, okay, this is the first one. If we continue to do the same things that we're doing, worse things are going to come. So it's definitely uh, the first call. And hopefully, a huge part of the population, a huge percentage of the population will understand this. And as I said, gain another perspective of environmental education and get it into their lives and encourage it to their lives and to their friends, families, social groups. Yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. And with hopefully conversations like this and people sharing things in person or on social media, just sharing that word, that actually is really helpful. Like um, that is one thing that the general public can do is, is just amplify that voice, amplify that message through social media, um, sharing it, starting these conversations, and that will start a chain reaction of influence and positive influence, the good kind of influence, because it can get bad influence on social media. But this is this is a good type of influence. This is the influence that you want to be. <laughs> exactly. I definitely think that us, us as as veterinary professionals, as biology professor professionals, you as a, as a, as a, as an encouraging person of the environment preservation. We need to establish. Uh, we are the first ones on the on the battle. We need to start developing ways of disseminating all this information into the general public, so they can get encouraged and motivated and see the positive things that they can get all out of of, of preserving the environment. It's a really simple thing: mm-hmm. changing our rate of lives, our consumption uh, lifestyle, could help a lot into the environment. We need to change a lot of things and. The COVID-19, as I said, is only uh, the first the first call uh, to start improving into a very environmental friendly future. Yeah, 100% agree. Okay, so nearing the end. So how can people connect with you uh, online and learn more about your, your work and perhaps um, yeah, just reach out to you? Yeah, so basically, uh, there's a lots of ways they can contact me or, or, getting, or get to know a little bit more about my work. They can they can uh, go into my Instagram page, which uh, or if you want to write it down, it, it's GINVT, uh, where I usually post a lot of of vet stuff, conservation vet stuff, as well uh, as in the laboratory that I work in, the biomolecular laboratory. Um, they can go into the very t- Facebook page, uh, Instagram page. It's named Biomol, B I O M O L, and they can see a lot of of the stuff we do there. As well, they can go into the Veritas University here in Costa Rica webpage, where they can see a lot of. of, of we're going to have a future webpage in the in the in the uh, in the very in the Veritas webpage, only for the lab. So they can hopefully in the near future get into the webpage and see a little bit. As well, um, there's a lot of ways that, that, that you can. If you want to reach me, uh, I can leave my email as well. And if you have any 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 doubts, definitely, uh, I'm really really pleased to talk to them. Yeah. So all this information I'll put in the show notes. So yeah, if you have any questions um, yeah, regarding this or anything, I guess, in conservation or whatever, message either of us. We're both happy to answer whatever questions we can. So yeah, feel free to do that. All right. So for the final segment of the podcast, what message do you want to leave the conservation tribe? So 
as I said, it's, it's a really pleasure. It's, it feels nice to be talking about this topic, specifically in these hard times. And I want to leave the message that we can still change our ways, ways of living. We can still change the, the negative perspective we have to the environment. We can environmental warriors. We can, even if we are not into research, even if we are not scientists, we can help in a lot of ways. As I said, educating and having environmental the environment as a first priority in your lives. It's really hard to do this, especially because of the of the way we've been living for the last years. But I think the message that I, that I want to leave is preserve the environment, and we will keep the the world healthy. So putting in your top five of life environmental priority, basically. Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please feel free to subscribe. And if you want to be an extra legend, then please also leave a review. It really does help grow the channel. Thanks again, and I will see you in the next episode.